0: Hey, Outcomes Rocket listeners. Thanks for tuning into the podcast again. Tired of your business's healthcare costs unpredictably increasing every year? Healthcare costs are typically a business's second or third line item expense. And if you're like most employers, it's an expense that's growing faster than your revenue. Luckily for employers, Novetta Health has the solution. Novetta Health is a full-service healthcare consulting firm with proven strategies to lower your healthcare costs by up to 30% or more. They operate on a fee-for-service model and never mark up any of their medical or pharmaceutical claims. None of your employees have to leave their doctor or pharmacist either. Their health captive and pharmacy benefit manager are the most cost-effective and transparent solutions in the whole country. What they do is not magic. It's just honest. So, if you're tired of overspending on health insurance and want to learn more, visit outcomesrocket.health/save for a free spend analysis to see how you too could save by switching to Novetta Health. That's outcomesrocket.health/save for your free spend analysis. Outcomesrocket.health/save. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the privilege of hosting Brett Mankey. He's a managing director, head of digital health investment banking at the BRAF Group, and he is also head of the healthcare technology and software investment banking there. It's a healthcare M&A advisory boutique consistently ranked as one of the top five healthcare investment banking firms in the United States by Thomson Reuters. BRAF has closed more than 325 healthcare transactions for clients with over $3.8 billion in aggregate annual revenue in the last 20 years. Over 125 of those transactions had PE fund acquirers as buyers, including Blackstone, JH Whitney, HIG Capital, and Audax, among others. Spread is primarily focused on sell side advisory engagements although he has been working a little bit on the buy side as well. We'll dive into that during the interview today in the US and Europe with a targeted transaction range of $20 million to $200 million in value. Brett has extensive background in mergers and acquisitions, business development, and strategy. In his career, he has been an international transactional lawyer and CEO and board member of several investor-backed technology companies. Most recently, he was a partner at Leech. Tishman in their New York and Pittsburgh offices, where he focused on the international corporate M&A transactions ranging in size from 25 to 200 million. Additionally, he served four years as vice president of business and strategic development for a 950 million annual revenue NASDAQ listed company in Northern Virginia. I had the privilege of, of meeting and connecting with Brett at the TEDMED event last year. And uh, I said, wow, I got to get this guy on. You all have to hear his perspective because it is definitely about where the puck is going. So without further ado, I want to welcome you to the podcast, Brett. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me, Saul. I certainly enjoyed meeting you at TEDMED and hanging out. And I'm happy to to get on the podcast and talk with you about my experience and where I think the market is headed for digital health and healthcare technology more broadly.
0: It'll be very interesting. And so what is it that got you into the space to begin with,
1: Brett? So in my career over the last 20 years, I have spent almost the entirety of it in the technology space. A lot of it in software, some on the device side, but I've always been in tech and I've touched over the years healthcare technology healthcare software companies and things as an advisor. I never ran a company in this space, but I certainly have been in and around it quite a bit over the years. And when I was approached by the BRAF group about taking this role, I started digging into the market and I could see that we're at the front end of a massive consolidation wave that needs to take place and will take place. There have just been so many companies funded. I think according to Rock Health. There have been over twelve hundred companies that have received more than two million dollars of institutional investment in the digital health space in the United States alone. When you think about that, it's you big. think about all the different categories, there are many people trying to do the same thing in each of these subsectors, and not all of them are going to make it right? Mm-hmm. So some of them will just go out of business, but many of them will get acquired, some by strategics, some by other startups as So there'll be a couple of ways of consolidation where there's going to be the the more successful startups buying the less successful startups. And then private equity funds buying, potentially buying the more successful startups and strategics, then flipping them and selling them to strategics. Now, there aren't a lot of IPO transactions in this space. Uh, I think there have only been a couple in the last four or five years. And almost everything ends with an acquisition or a merger at this point. That's a really interesting call
0: out, Brett, because when you take a look at the pure tech space, not, not in healthcare, you, know, you do see more IPO compared to healthcare. Why do you think that is?
1: I just think because of the sales cycles, the length of the sales cycles. You know, I, think, yeah. I know that in your day job, you sell in this space. It is the sales cycles and how long it takes to sell to somebody, particularly wow. on the provider side, much longer. And it's very difficult for people to gain significant amounts of traction. One of the filters that I use and whether I would be willing to sell somebody is, you know, they have to have revenues beyond the proof of concept stage, which to me is sort of 3 million or 4 million, somewhere in that range. Yeah. Because if they, they don't have that much revenue on an annual basis, then it shows me that they have maybe some pilots that they've, they've had in place, maybe one or two customers. But to be successful, you need multiple customers, right? And not just pilot deals. The great thing about these businesses is most of them operate on a recurring revenue business model with multi-year contracts. Mm -hmm. So when you get someone who's successful and they've been able to get to a certain, certain scale, because of the nature of those contracts, you can start to see how the revenue and the cash flows start to stack up fairly quickly when you get into outer years. Because if you're signing new contracts all the time with people that are three or four or five years in duration, you can project out very easily the cash flows and the profit margins and all these software gross profit margins should be north of 80%. That at least gives you an opportunity to have EBITDA margins north of 40% if you're performing as it scales. So those are very, very attractive attributes for buyers. The problem is, you know, I don't know if you know uh, Joffrey Moore at all, but Crossing the Chasm, are you familiar with that? Yes. So, the difficulty lies in crossing the chasm here is how do I get from a couple of customers to maybe making it to a point where I've now sort of got scalability? And that scalability, I think, comes somewhere around the three to four million in annual revenue, recurring revenue range. I also, it's crazy to me the number of companies that have been backed by large venture funds. Silicon Valley funds even, yeah. that have you know, raised north of $20 million and have less than a million in revenue. What other world is that an acceptable paradigm <laughs> for software? I mean, it yeah. doesn't take that much money to build a software company anymore. When I ran, a, ran my first software company, you know, we had to have data centers. We had to have infrastructure. AWS has taken all of that out of the equation. Mm-hmm. And on the developer side, people now go to India and other places, and they, you know, they hire three or four developers for the price of one in the U.S. The model and the cost have gone down so much from a dramatic perspective. I think, here's where I think the issue is. All of the guys, and I, I talk to CEOs constantly of venture-funded mm-hmm. startups in particular. I think all of these guys want to own the customer so much that they try to scale into this giant sales force, which they can't compete. On that front they're never going to be able to scale with a you know it's too much money to build a giant sales force. You work for a big company with a giant sales force. How much does it cost just to maintain that sales force? If more of the startups would be willing to sign larger OEM type or distribution deals with the the larger companies. I think that you will see a faster uptake in terms of scaling
0: yeah, uh, some fascinating insights there and uh... What I love about conversations with you, Brett, is that uh, you know there's there's a lot of things that you don't think about, and uh, you definitely give this space a lot of thought. You're you're deep into it. You're always questioning assumptions, and 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 that's what I really enjoyed about connecting with you live, and now here on the podcast, so that so the listeners could experience some of that cool insight that you always offer. What would you say is some of your insights on the future of healthcare? in general, as it relates to people buying companies, people selling companies?
1: So I think some broad macro level trends are going to happen, whether people want them to happen or not. I know it's almost heresy to say this, but I think a couple (laughs) of things are going to happen. The first thing is, I think that AI is going to transition from a tool that is used to help diagnosing, to actually doing the first line of diagnosis. I think that's an inevitable trend. I think doctors are going to be trained differently. They're going to be trained so that they confirm or deny the diagnosis rather than make the diagnosis and then put the care plan in place. That is going to happen in a number of, particularly in the medical imaging space, because the accuracy is just higher. A lot of these companies are able to have 98%, 99% accuracy because the the algorithms keep learning and always are learning from all the data that's input and fed into the system. And even a top-notch radiologist is at about 95 96% accuracy. So when you can cut time out of the equation in terms of making the initial diagnosis, it's going to be, there's a shortage of radiologists anyway. So it's going to allow the existing radiologists to be able to make decisions at a much more rapid pace, right? And that's going to save lives. And anytime you can cut the decision-making time to get someone into surgery for a stroke or whatever, and I think that that is a very interesting proposition. So that's the first sort of thing that I I look at and I see. I think another thing that is a bit heretical is I think that in the United States, I am a capitalist. I think I've told you that before. But I believe that in the longer term, the trend is going to be everyone is going to have some form of baseline insurance coverage and single payer on top of, well, I think it's going to be some element of single payer. And on top of that, there's going to be private insurance for those people that is actually treated as a benefit. I lived and worked in England for almost five years. I had three different jobs there. Every job I had there, I had always had NHS access, but I always had private insurance paid for by my employer that I got taxed on as a benefit, but I didn't have to pay any money towards. That was the state of the job market, right? So in professional jobs, you would still have your private insurance in a single payer system in the United States, I believe. But the people that don't have coverage, that get cancer won't have to file for bankruptcy in order to try to stay alive. I think that is something that's going to happen. And it may not happen in the next two or three or four or five years, but in the next 10 or 15 years, it's bound to happen because the people that are the millennial generation and younger, they think it's barbaric that we're the only Western-style democracy that doesn't have that level of baseline coverage.
0: Right. No, and I, and I'll say that I definitely believe that 63% of all bankruptcies having to do with healthcare is definitely unacceptable.
1: I look at that and I, I, it's a, I'm terrible. flabbergasted by that number, right? It's horrible.
0: You know, the crazy thing is that, is that I found out that out of those 63%, the majority of them had insurance.
1: Well, I can tell you from a personal perspective, my wife was in a car accident when she was pregnant with my youngest daughter. Oh, my God. Um, and my toddler, who was like 11 months, was in the back seat. And a guy ran a red light and hit my wife in a T-bone accident. He was going 45 miles an hour in a Dodge Durango. Wow. And she was going 25 miles an hour. And he hit her dead right on the, the driver's side door, right? Wow. And oh, my, gosh. my wife, taken to the hospital, rushed to the hospital. There was such a force. She was driven through the intersection. We had a BMW X3. The X3 flipped, hit a truck on the other side of the, parked on the corner. Were you in the car? So I wasn't there. Oh, wow. I was sitting at home watching a football game and I got a call from someone who was just at the scene who said, hey, I know your wife and I was walking down the street and I saw her getting put in an ambulance with your kids. You probably want to know about that. Can't even imagine. And I had just sold my second vehicle and this was in Northern Virginia and we lived in Washington, D.C. at the time. And so... I had to find someone to give me a ride because it was before Uber or Lyft. Yeah. And it was hard to get a taxi to come to your house in Washington, D.C. So (laughs) it took me like two hours to get to the emergency room. Oh, man. So my wife ended up fracturing ribs, (sighs) developing placenta previa while she was pregnant. So the baby wasn't born right away. She was put on bed rest in our house. I got a nanny for my toddler. I was working at Venable at the time and over by the Verizon Center. Mm -hmm. The lawyer, and I made the decision that I had enough money saved up and I really needed to just help get my wife through this pregnancy. So I quit my job, which I was inclined to do anyway. I quit on a Friday. Wow. On Sunday, my wife had a placental abruption and we woke up in a pool of blood. I (sighs) called my OBGYN. She said, my wife's OBGYN, she said, listen, put a towel between your wife's legs. Oh my gosh. Put her in the car, run every red light don't worry about calling an ambulance. It's going to take too long. I'll meet you at the hospital. It was like six 30 in the morning. Wow. And she said, and the last, last thing she said to me, is don't forget your toddler. Cause I would have forgotten. Oh
0: her. my gosh. That's a good point. <laughs> in the so I, of
1: <laughs> I grab her drive, run all the red lights. She meets me there. She tells me on the way in, I need you to pick your wife or your baby that's inside her, which was crazy, right? That's an insane thing to tell someone. That is insane. I said, I picked my wife, obviously. Yeah. So my daughter was born 11 weeks prematurely, spent five weeks in the NICU. My wife lost half the blood in her body. She was in for three weeks almost in the hospital. And when I got all the bills, total amount of bills was like $450,000. Normally, you would have a cap, but because of all of the people that were out of network that I didn't know about even then. I ended up having to pay almost $80,000 and I had insurance, yeah. right?
0: Yeah. So you went so through So if your- I
1: didn't, right, if I didn't have money that saved up, then how would I have been able to afford that? I would have had mm-hmm. to file bankruptcy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So what you said doesn't surprise me at all. Wow. You know, I have personal evidence of it. Yeah. And if I were in the UK where I had been, you know, this was in 2006 by the time that my daughter was born, but six years earlier, I wouldn't have had to worry about anything. It would have just been taken care of. So that's a big problem. And what you know, I'm an upper middle class kind of guy. I'm very fortunate in that regard. But I grew up lower middle class. I was I'm come I come from a family of steel workers and coal miners and people like that. Right? Yeah. Union members. Now, you the union at least had good insurance. But you know, my mom was a single mom who raised three boys. If something would have happened like that to her, we would have had she would have had to file bankruptcy. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So. I look at the, where the world is headed and where it has come from. The current path, where we are today, is not a sustainable point. It's going to have to evolve. A lot of that is going to be driven by how do we take cost out of the system, and the cost out, can be taken out of the system through technology. Yeah. There are still going to be providers. There are still going to be payers although they are going to change in who they serve somewhat. I think the first thing that's going to happen is, Medicare is going to be extended downhill to a younger age and there's going to be earlier Medicare advantage. That's just sort of a logical place for this to go. That's an opportunity for the insurers, the payers, in my view, because they're going to get a period of time that's going to allow them to transition. There's going to be a lot of creative destruction about business models. And if you're not willing to be nimble and adapt, you're going to be destroyed.
0: Brett, thanks for sharing that story. Definitely. Uh, you lived it, and thankfully, you you were able to absorb it, and, and, and everybody's okay, and I know that Brett's two lovely daughters are still are doing well, and so that you fast forward to today, folks, if you're wondering, uh, his daughters are doing awesome. So is his wife. So, you know, there's a happy ending to his story, but unfortunately, not for 63% of people filing for bankruptcy. So, tell us about a time when maybe you or, or one of the companies that you work with had a setback. We'd like to learn from setbacks and mistakes here, and what could have been done differently and, and, and to be
1: better. Sure. So, I I thought about this question when you raised it earlier to me, and I and I I think if there's a lesson that I can impart upon people, I would say the following. I became the CEO of a company that was venture funded in London at a very young age, I would say. In comparison, I was 28 years old. The CEO that I replaced in that business was one of the co-founders, and he stayed in the business with me. But he had, at a board level, approved me as the CEO, right? It wasn't my idea to become the CEO. The board decided to They needed somebody that was different than the guy that was the CEO to be the CEO. And we were raising a twenty five billion or twenty five million dollar round with Deutsche Bank Mm -hmm. where we were about to. And they knew that he wasn't comfortable dealing with venture capital funds and investment bankers and the like. And I had spent already a couple of years of my career dealing with those sorts of folks at the big law firm that I had for in London called Ashurst that had when I was there nine hundred lawyers. So when I got replaced and when I replaced him I probably should have not let him stay in the company. And as the CEO, if you come in and it's not your company and you become the CEO, not something that you normally would think about at that time, but every time at a board level that we took a decision that he wasn't happy with, he would undermine me to the employees that had worked for him for a a period of years before I became the CEO, Mm. right? And what's ironic is he was sort of the guy who wanted me to come work, take the job that I took in the company in the first place. And I was friends with him. So I wasn't expecting it. But right. the longer this time progressed, it became more and more of an issue. And at one point in 2000, someone offered us $50 million in cash for a business with $4 million in revenue. And I took it to my board and said, let's sell. And the board said, let's sell. And he and another guy controlled 53% of the shares on a fully diluted basis. And they, he convinced the other technology guy who's now on my advisory board, ironically, and has been in digital health for the last 20 years as the CTO of venture-funded digital health companies. He convinced that guy to reject the deal. The internet bubble popped. I had to do a fire sale of the business to this day, it's the fastest deal I've ever done in my life. From the first time I spoke to somebody till closing, it was 17 days. I've never done a bit deal that that's, fast. That's but I had to do it. That's speedy. I not have a choice, right? But I guess the lesson I learned is if you become the CEO of something and you replace someone who has been in that business for a long period of time, you should take them out of the business. He could have stayed on the board. That wouldn't have been an issue. But in the day-to-day operations of the business, it's something that he obviously has relationships built, and if he doesn't agree with the path that the board sets with you as the CEO, he can completely undermine you, or she, right? Right. And I would say to you that that is a lesson that I, in hindsight, that I learned from that experience. Now, to this day, I had a good result with the guy who was my COO, who was a younger guy. We tried to buy a company together with Private Equity Fund in London. After that, you know, ten years later, the guy who was my CTO, who was the other co-founder was the technologist, who wasn't the CEO is now on my advisory board for the BRAF Group, which is really interesting. That was one of the things that attracted me to the Braff group is other than you know the number of deals that they've closed, they were willing to invest in this sector in a way that I thought would make me successful. I have a nine person advisory board that is a paid position where they are a resource for me. And it's people that have been, I have two guys that were CTOs of five or six companies that have been venture funded that have been sold, one in London, one in the US. I have the CMO of Navi Health. I have the CEO of a venture funded company called Sitka, a woman named Kelsey Millard. I just added a woman who was named Adele Briggs, who was one of the five founding team members of the Martin Luther King Jr. Hospital in Compton that's got voted the most wired hospital, one of the most wired hospitals in the country. And she was the one who determined all the technology from the ground up as a clinician. So it's top-notch quality people on that board. And that was one of the things that sort of drew me to this role. I knew that they were going to invest the right way. Um, Yeah, it's a commitment on their part. And there are certain areas that I'm interested in that they're letting me pursue. I am definitely interested in AI, particularly in the medical imaging space. I think that remote patient monitoring and wearables is a thing that's gonna continue to have momentum. I think interoperability, anything that solves sort of the deep interoperability issues that a lot of providers have is a very interesting area. Telemedicine, the trend is gonna have more and more, that's I think tied to remote patient monitoring in many ways. And then I think a lot of the, which is tied to AI, but predictive analytics and things of that nature when coupled with AI are going to lead to a change in how we diagnose diseases. And there's obviously a lot of other categories, but those are some (laughs) of the ones that are really interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. No, that's, you definitely have a lot of, a lot of exciting things going on right now, Brett, and definitely appreciate your, your insights there. What, what book would you recommend
1: to the listeners? So, I, I thought about this cuz I, I read constantly. I'm always on airplanes.
0: Yeah. You do a lot of audio, do you do a lot of uh you like to read it uh in your hand or a Kindle? Or I
1: need it in my hands. I can't yeah. do Kindle. I haven't been able to do it, I, you know, yeah. and the trees probably don't like me for it, but that's part of <laughs> I guess part of my old school nature and oh, uh you know, even being a lawyer by training, yeah. you get used to putting your head in a book, right? Yeah, for sure. So, for sure. I would say on the fiction side, Anything by Umberto Eco or Gabrielle Garcia Marquez, I like. Cool. Um, so if I had to pick two, maybe 100 Years of Solitude or Foucault's Pendulum. And then I read a ton of nonfiction. So there's a three-part Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt biography by Edmund Morris. It's mm-hmm. really good. I, Last Lion by William Manchester, which is a Churchill biography I read recently. And then I'd say the third category I have that I've been reading a lot of lately is things that are multi-dimensional in terms of you know a mixture of history and science and all different things. I don't know if you've read anything any of the Harari books.
0: Oh, um, um, you know what we've I, I haven't, uh, but he he's the guy that wrote *Sapiens*.
1: Yeah, now and *Homo Deus*, and then and *Homo Deus*. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, those are on my so that, list. Those, those are know, really I'm good. One, but yeah. And then the other one that's sort of a precursor to all that stuff. I don't know if you've ever read any, uh, Jared diamond. He wrote guns, germs and steel and collapse, but they yeah. are really broad taken to a number of areas of study that they digest information and present it to you. And it's really fascinating when you can have that broad view. And I, I would say they're almost in their own category, right? Yeah. <laughs> because they're not history. They're not just science. They're, not just economics; all of those things are together. And yeah, it's like I, I an just think it makes, uh, Yeah, yeah. I think that's right, and I think you know I went to a liberal arts college, so I think part of that sort of appeals to me. I was actually pre med for two years, are which really? is helping in this so Yeah. Oh so,
0: yeah, you did tell me that. You did tell me that.
1: Yeah, so it's sort of coming full circle. It is. Um, yeah. well, that's really cool for me. But I'm enjoying this space immensely. I think it's very dynamic, fast-moving, other than on the customer side, but there's a lot of right. ways to put these things together, and I think that the number of buyers who aren't obvious who are now buying things in spaces you wouldn't expect is growing rapidly. I mean, there are payers that are you wouldn't think would be buyers or buyers. There are pharma companies, there are device manufacturers, there are obviously there's all the private equity guys and then you have things like CVS and Aetna and Apple and Amazon and everybody's attacking this from a different perspective because they all realize this is a market that's got a lot of change coming. And I would say that, you know, I'm not only a proponent of Buffett, but if you believe some of the things that he believes, anytime there's chaos and there's blood in the streets, there's opportunity. Right. Yeah. So there are going to be people that don't, Take advantage of the chaos and are going to be left behind eventually. So, on the the larger company side, you've got to be willing to destroy your own business. And if you're not willing to do that or reinvent it, someone else is going to do it to you.
0: Love it, man. Nah, no, you you definitely left us with a lot to think about. And so, Brett, I think this is definitely um, has been an interesting discussion. Folks, uh, you know, wish we could stay on a little bit longer, but we've gotten to the end here. Brett is available. Uh, you could check out a lot of his work and reach out. Brett, what would be the best way for them to reach out or, or follow you?
1: Yeah. You, so I'm on LinkedIn, although I only usually link in with people that I know. I was in the first 700,000 people in LinkedIn, uh, and I still only have less than 800 contacts. Nice. I guess I, I leave my network open. So I want to make sure that I know everybody that's in there. But I, I think that, you know, you can reach out to me at, at my BRAF email address, which is bmankey at thebraffgroup.com. Or, you know, I'm happy to have anybody. There's a phone number also listed on our website. They can call me if they want to give me a call. I'm happy to speak with them.
0: Outstanding, right? Brett. Really appreciate the thoughts you shared today. And uh, maybe we'll get you back on here in the next year because it's uh, always a pleasure to speak to you. So appreciate you carving
1: out the time for us out. You're welcome. So I enjoyed it as well. Thanks. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more.